Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'll be joined by Matthew Dennis, Professor of History and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. We'll be talking about his new book, Seneca Possessed, Indians, Witchcraft, and Power in the Early American Republic, from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Before I moved down to Georgia, I spent five years in Binghamton, New York, in what locals would call New York's southern tier, but could fairly be named upstate, that vast terrain of anything and everything that's not downstate, i.e. New York City and its suburbs. Binghamton, like so many post-industrial upstate cities, has been losing population pretty steadily now for decades. But for the century and a half before America's rust belts started rusting, the trend was quite the opposite. Beginning with the wild land grabs of the post-revolutionary period, continuing with the market revolution brought on by the building of the canal system, and the rapid industrialization, waves and waves of settlers, immigrants, religious separatists, speculators, entrepreneurs, and laborers flooded into upstate New York. And now, just as sure as they came, folks are leaving. There is, of course, one group of upstaters who stuck around for a long time, thousands of years, in fact, and still remain very much alive and vibrant today. These are the six nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, more commonly known as the Iroquois, a formidable political force in colonial-era politics, but whose stature was diminished by the crisis of America's Revolutionary War. Their survival in their homelands was no foregone conclusion. Divided by the U.S.-English conflict, their land base ransacked by American soldiers, speculators, and settlers, their once considerable political power reduced, and their culture threatened by an influx of zealous missionaries, the Iroquois, and in particular the Seneca Indian Nation, faced what Matthew Dennis calls the daunting colonial crucible. So how did they persist in this dangerous new world? In his new book, Matthew Dennis demonstrates how the Seneca selectively adapted to the invasion of their homeland, building upon elements of their culture to survive the economic and political transformations of the post-revolutionary period. In particular, the revelations of the Seneca prophet Handsome Lake blended with elements of Christianity to yield a new and powerful religion that rejected elements of white degradation. But in the process, the previously powerful position of women in Seneca society was greatly diminished, as accusations of witchcraft, newly focused solely on women, led to gendered violence. This is a complicated and challenging story, but it's essential to understanding both the violence to Native people that was America's founding, and how Native nations persisted nonetheless. I hope you enjoy the interview. Matthew Dennis, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Today we'll be discussing your recent book, Seneca Possessed, Indians, Witchcraft, and Power in the Early American Republic from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Before we dive into the very diverse and rich themes you explore here, I'm hoping you can introduce yourself and talk about how you came to write this book. 
Um, well, I'm a professor of history and environmental studies at the University of Oregon, and um, I, um, you know, I, I've had a, a long-term interest uh, broadly in um, history of Native people, and particularly the way that they fit or don't fit or make us, you know, rethink um, the narratives of American history, particularly early American history, which is um, has been my specialty. And so I started off um, as a graduate student years ago at the University of California, Berkeley, um, as an early American historian. It seemed to me at that point, that was the late 70s, early 80s, that um, the area that really required the most work or where, where you know, I thought I could could uh, contribute the most was in the study of uh, American Indians, colonialism, um, and the vital role that Native people played in uh, in those years, you know, on, on their own terms, certainly, but also uh, how they affected the course of American history as it's generally understood. And so um, I ended up, um, you know, trying to, I was thinking about, you know, where I might um, focus my study. And I, I thought that the place that, you know, was most important for me, at least, and, and for the understanding of early America was in Iroquois. And so I, I started off really as a 17th century historian. And I was very interested in the complicated relationship between the Dutch and the French and the Iroquois and later the, um, the English. And so I wrote a dissertation on that, which became my first book, Cultivating a Landscape of Peace. Uh, Iroquois-European relations in the 17th century, and so I, you know, I, I continued, you know, my interest, especially in um, in Native history, uh, the particular experience of the Haudenosaunee people, and and um, and then, you know, again, the way that they would affect the course of of a larger narrative, a larger American history. Uh, but in the meantime, I was interested in um, some other issues um, and themes, and uh, that came out of some of my more general teaching. And so I uh, wrote about uh, politics of public memory, uh, especially as they worked out in public celebrations, uh, holidays throughout American history. And so I have, I, I published a book called Red, White, and Blue Letter Days in American Calendar, uh, which had different chapters that focused on different American holidays. There their apparent or real origin and how they were transformed over time. And in that book, actually, there's quite a lot about um, the uh, about and drawing from Native history. Although I don't think most people, you know, know that uh, about the book. But um, all this time, I still was very interested, especially in Iroquois history. And 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 so my my third book, which is Seneca Possessed, um, kind of leaps over the 18th century, which um, you know, I think it's attracted the work of a lot of very talented historians and and uh, wanted to try to figure out what happened um, in the 50-year period after American independence, after the, uh, the American Revolution. And I centered the story on Western New York and the history of uh, uh, the Senecas and how it was that they um, endured the colonialism that continued in post-colonial United States. And I I, I thought that, you know, despite the, the really monumental and, and still very, very valuable uh, book by Anthony F.C. Wallace, Death and Rebirth of the Seneca, that um, it might be time to to explore that subject. So while you know, I'm, I'm a great admirer of that book, and I think, you know, everyone should still uh, read it, I hope that the work that I have done 
on the Senecas in that um, roughly in the same period has uh, you know has something to contribute as well. And so what I try to do is is uh, um, is take that story uh, on its own terms, but also try to understand how it is that um, telling that or, or understanding that story changes our understanding of American history uh, writ large. I think a lot of historians uh, that work on the early American period have found the early republic as a, as a particularly important uh, era to study. And you know, again, there's been a lot of very, very good work uh, in the field. Um, I was attracted to it in particular because if you look at upstate New York uh, in, the, in this period after the revolution, um, pretty much all of the important themes that are often identified in American history um, are there. Uh, westward expansion, you know, it's like the, uh, some of the first so-called uh, frontiers, um, a, um, an agricultural and commercial revolution, the formation of new kinds of market relationships, a transportation revolution as the Erie Canal uh, opens up um, the Great Lakes uh, and, and connects them with New York City and makes New York uh, the Empire State in New York City, um, a kind of um, you know, hub of empire. Um, you have um, all kinds of of, um, uh, of really, you know, still uh, pretty surprising um, religious revivals, and it's the kind of a heartland of uh, American reform in the 19th century. And um, pretty much all of the issues that world around this period, except maybe for the um, slavery issue, which is, is much less uh, central, um, we can find right there. Um, and yet, um, the, the Seneca story, the, the, the native story, is not so uh, prominent when we look at kind of standard works of those major themes. And yet, I think it was vitally important and actually did influence the course of American history as Americans were trying to work out their identity what they were, um, you know, what it meant to be a republic, um, what what federalism um, as a concept of government would really mean, and so forth. So um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to tell a very complicated story of the Senecas and um, embed it in a narrative of American history that would be mutually illuminating, that would help us understand. Um, the, the particular story and the larger story better. I think you've been quite successful in that. And I want to um, talk a little bit more about some of the themes you raise that are going on in Western New York in this period. Um, before we do that, though, um, I, I found the title of your work and the opening epigraph as well, both deeply compelling. And so I'll ask first, why Seneca possessed? And, and what are the multiple meanings you're implying by this term, possessed? And secondly, I, I wanted you to talk about the significance of the opening epigraph, this quote from Walter Benjamin, there is no document of civilization that is not at the same time a document of barbarism. Um, okay, well, um, the title is a play on a influential, an influential work um, in early American history, uh, Salem Possessed, uh, which which looks at the ordeal of Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1690s uh, when the town went through its famous witch crisis, in which we you know um, there were wild accusations and 
numerous prosecutions and ultimately uh, 19 executions for witchcraft. And there's a one of the things that, that first drew me, drew me to the project when I was looking into it was um, a quotation that came out of a trial in 1821 of um, a man named Sangise, or um, commonly known as Tommy Jemmy. It was a murder trial, and um, uh, this man was accused of murder uh, uh, in, you know, in Western New York in, in 1821. He did not deny the charge, uh, but instead insisted uh, that he was acting as a, you know, more or less an officer of the court, uh, prosecuting a crime uh, committed uh, by a Seneca person um, on another Seneca person within the juris- within Seneca jurisdiction, and so he wasn't a murderer, but a lawful executioner um, instead. And in this um, in this trial, um, which is, is very interesting and complicated, and I go into at great length in the book, um, at one point, uh, Red Jacket, a famous Seneca orator and a leader of the Buffalo Creek Senecas, um, rose and uh, and proclaimed that um, what what the Senecas were doing was not essentially different than what happened at Salem, Massachusetts, and it just kind of flummoxed um, the white. Uh, hearers of, of this message, and he was very clever in the way he turned this around. So it wasn't, you know, me necessarily that uh, was drawing the um, comparisons between Salem, Massachusetts in the 1690s and um, the Seneca lands in the 1820s, but it, you know, it came out of um, this very, very, uh, very clever and well-deployed oratory of, of Red Jack. So um, so witchcraft is at the heart of the book, um, although it functions in the book in a way that might be surprising. And ultimately, um, it's not exactly, um, you know, Salem, um, Salem in the 1690s was different from what was going on in Western New York in the early 19th century. Um, but, but, um, so, but, but nonetheless, I thought it was worth exploring this, um, this connection. And so, you know, I thought about, um, the title that, um, uh, Boyer Nissenbaum gave to this book, Salem Possessed. And, um, and, and so I thought about the word possessed and, you know, has, has a number of meanings, all of which I think, or many of which I explore in the book. Um, you know, possess, possession, it's, um, it's, it's about, it's about property. It's about rights to property. Um, it's, it, it's to be self-possessed is to be, um, uh, controlled, um, to, uh, to, for people to repossess is to take something away that they believe is theirs, but someone else uh, seems to hold, uh, you know, unlawfully. Um, possession has this, um, this, you know, uh, demonic uh, kind of side that you know you, one can be possessed by a spirit or by the devil. And so, um, you know, I, I play with this a bit and lay this out in the in the introduction, um, but ultimately work through and and try to explore the way that the um, Senecas possess their land legitimately and, um, you know, in in their own um, particularly, uh, you know, culturally specific ways that adjusted over time. I look at how uh, some tried to repossess it, um, 
uh, to to, uh, to unlawfully take it away by making claims on it that um, you know, I think that we would you know all conclusive now are illegitimate, and certainly the Senecas did at the time. I, I look at the, the spiritual battles, the internal ones as well as the external ones, as missionaries came and tried to transform Seneca people. Uh, Senecas themselves went through a, uh, a religious transformation and revitalization that was absolutely critical in the way they were able to reconstitute themselves, reinvent themselves, and survive in the 19th century. Um, so it's, it's in all of these uh, different ways, I think, possession um, and forms of possession are critical ways, at least, of, uh, of, of kind of organizing and understanding um, the complicated story I'm trying to tell. Um, the, the epigraph from uh, uh, Walter Benjamin is, um, you know, is is like much of Benjamin's work, at least to me, um, you know, challenging and 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 thought provoking. And um, because I'm not a Benjamin scholar, you know, I th- there may be other ways of interpreting uh, the meaning. But um, you know, I'm particularly interested in the. Alternative, alternate, alternative ways that one can understand what was going on in the early 19th century, and the um, the white American project was often, you know, kind of paraphrased as civilization, and, and clearly it was, um, you know, it, 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 you know, the, the the settling of the so-called settling of the West was profoundly unsettling. Um, the claims that are made um, about, you know, improvement and in cultivation, civilization, um, in the spread of opportunity or democracy and freedom, all of these things um, were, uh, while broadly stated, were exclusivist um, and were often done at the expense of others. And so, you know, I... Uh, it, it's it's a it's a way of at least provoking thought about the um, you know the other side of the coin um, the way that um, the, the way that things have uh, lights and light sides and dark sides and um, and so I it it's I think um, for me uh, what's significant about it is it's um, it's contesting um, the simple uh, dichotomy between civilization and barbarism and um, showing how um, they can be reversed. And ultimately, I think, undermining this whole, uh, you know, progressive, um, you know, sort of idea that, that one goes through these stages. Um, you know, history isn't just, uh, you know, a, a glorious ascent into, into the light. I was reminded of that quote that you lay out, that, that Walter Benjamin quote, when you discuss uh, some of the incidents that happened in the Revolutionary War. Um, obviously, most of this book focuses on the period after that, the, the crucible, the colonial crucible faced by the Senecas in the wake of that war. Um, but I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, in particular, the Sullivan campaign in 1779 and how that transforms Iroquois country. Uh, because I think there is a popular idea of American military conduct in the war for independence as a scrappy, determined, but, but ultimately always honorable. And, and there were certainly many examples of that, but the Sullivan campaign, which really remakes Iroquois, seems like something else entirely. 
Yeah, I think that scholars have um, have been aware of this for a long time and are, are trying to, uh, you know, tell this story and have done it um, pretty uh, well for a while. But it, it does go against the kind of standard uh, heroic myth of the, of the, uh, the revolution. The revolution is um, is a unique historic event in that, um, or, or fairly distinctive historical event in that. Um, you know, it seems to most people uncontroversial. People are more or less in favor of it, and they're in favor of it because it's the it's the you know the birth of uh, the United States, and you know it's uh, it, it's progress, it's promise, it's promise of, of democracy and opportunity, equality, and all those things. And you know, it 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 was a uh, uh, an absolutely um, um, Epic event um, that produced much good. The the standard notions about it, though, I mean, if you look at the revolution, um, not so much from the perspective of seaboard cities uh, and you know the battles that are most famously reported, uh, but if you look at it facing west, or um, then then it looks you know very different uh, because then it becomes a um, a kind of civil war. And it becomes a kind of uh, terror, uh, a total war, in which non-combatants are are, are pulled in and, and destroyed. Their their, their land uh, savaged. Um, people, even if not killed directly, are left uh, exposed and to, uh, to to the elements and to hunger at the worst of times in the dead of winter. And that's that's what happened in the Sullivan campaigns. Um, the, um, the Iroquois attempted to remain neutral. They were at a, a kind of an important pivotal position um, between the forces of, of, uh, of Britain and the rebels, and uh, you know at a, at, a, at a critical geographical location as well. Uh, they were a powerful and skilled uh, fighting force, and um, unfortunately, um, they were unable to remain uh, neutral. Uh, and so they were drawn in, and, and what's worse, um, drawn in, uh, the constituent nations uh, were drawn into different sides. Um, it was a very difficult decision for individual communities, uh, tribes, um, the Confederacy to figure out, you know, kind of which way to go if, if they were pushed one way to the other. And, and so the um, revolution for the Iroquois became a civil war with some, some nations on one side and others on the other. Um, there's been really good work uh, done on this lately, which lays this out, I think, in a very skillful way, in a more complex way, um, that, that, that qualified this idea of civil war um, a bit, especially uh, the work of um, Karen Tyrell um, in a book recently published um, called The People of the uh, Standing Stone about the Oneidas. Um, but it was clear that through this kind of total warfare campaign in which their uh, villages were destroyed, crops were were uh, were burned, stores of food were uh, uh, were destroyed. Um, virtually everyone in Iroquois country uh, became uh, refugee and refugees. Um, this is also a period of um, epidemic, um, uh, smallpox epidemics raging through, and so the the war itself was profoundly devastating um, for. Uh, the Iroquois uh, people, and you know, much of this was um, because of the, the real savagery of warfare uh, on this uh, frontier between um, Native people on different sides 
whites on different sides. And, you know, it was just uh, complicated and chaotic and ultimately um, devastating. Um, what happened, though, is that, um, you know, Native, Native people uh, in this region, the, the Iroquois in particular, had to find ways to reconstitute themselves, rebuild their uh, society, maintain claims to their land. Um, and so the post-war period is this very difficult struggle uh, of survival. Uh, how would it, how, how would they be able to survive amid these changing conditions? Covering from the devastation of the war and then dealing with a colonial power that saw itself not as, um, a colonizer, uh, but as an, as an anti-colonial, uh, sort of, um, regime. Uh, and so they had to, uh, negotiate with the greatest skills and, and, um, you know, act in ways that were uh, creative politically and economically and culturally, religiously, um, that are, you know, it's really fairly, fairly astonishing. Now in this, in this post-war uh, world of Western New York, there are some fascinating, if dubious, characters that populate it. Um, Ebenezer Allen and Jemima Wilkinson, they both stand out uh, in, this, in this world of Western New York for different reasons, obviously. Um, Talk about these characters and what they say about the the changing cultural and economic landscape of Western New York. What brings people like Ebenezer Allen and Jemima Wilkinson into the heart of Seneca country in this period? Um, well, um, in, you know, what we see in this post-war period is a really complicated landscape. Um, many uh, soldiers who had come up with Sullivan uh, were just astonished by the fertility, uh, beauty, the beauty, the potential bounty of this landscape. Uh, and so many of them sought to uh, settle, and, 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 and some, you know, were paid off uh, in, uh, in land bounties, um, so that the land that uh, Seneca's possessed um, was actually uh, used as ways of, you know, paying off the debt to individual soldiers, among, among other things. Um, so it was a, it was a land that, um, that, that, um, the Senecas and other Iroquois people had um, controlled for a long time. In the disarray that followed the war, that land seemed open for white settlement. Um, and so it was, a, it was a kind of a patchwork, and it depended a lot about, um, you know, what parts would be settled would be dependent in part about which would be most economically viable, connected to transportation routes and all that. And ultimately, um, the Erie Canal uh, would, would really transform it. By, um, by linking all of these small towns and communities and, you know, instant cities like Rochester in the 1830s into a new market economy. Uh, but before that happened, um, it was a, a place that seemed uh, promising for Americans who had been, in their view, white Americans who had been bottled up in the East to kind of spread out, uh, find, pursue opportunity, uh, which mostly was in the form of land. Um, and to pursue other kinds of of, of, uh, of goals and desires and opportunities, uh, some of which were religious. So if we start with uh, Jemima uh, Wilkinson, um, we see one of, of a series of um, religious figures um, who wanted to remake the world, often through some kind of prophecy. Uh, uh, Wilkinson um, had a uh, founded a a new Jerusalem in Seneca country, uh, not so far from uh, various Seneca settlements, and and had 
um, you know, it's, it's the, the intricacies of her theology um, are, you know, maybe beyond me right now. I, I, but, but what's interesting is she was one of a number of utopian communities. When I say she, that's not always clear either, because she herself uh, believed that she was um, a... Um, uh, a god figure uh, beyond gender. So these the pronouns, you know, don't necessarily sure. work. He, she, um, it's not clear. But um, but but this um, this settlement was one of a number of utopian communities, um, religiously infused, um, uh, kind of social, communal, economic experiments that emerged throughout. And it's one of the reasons that um, the historian Whitney Cross. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, um, called this area burnt over district because it just seemed to be singed by, by the, uh, by the power of religious revivalism. And so a second great awakening, you know, would, would, uh, rage through, um, uh, through the, the new United States in the early 19th century. And this was kind of one of the, one of the first waves. Um, so, um, you know, we see other ones, uh, emerge as well. Shakers, uh, uh, moved into New York, and um, we see other kinds of utopian communities like uh, uh, Noise you know, Oneida later, or um, uh, the preaching of Charles Grandison Finney and its revivalism in the 1830s, especially in Rochester, and um, and, and the growth of um, uh, Mormonism following the revelations of uh, Joseph Smith, and so forth. So this is a place of great uh, ferment. Missionaries were out there as well. Um, uh, patrolling to to try to better church um, the white settlers who went out there and the, what they saw as the remnant Indian people um, as well. So it was a volatile place uh, intellectually and religiously uh, throughout this um, throughout this era. Sure. Um, Ebenezer Allen um, was an opportunist, and um, in the, the kind of the unsettled conditions of this. Um, this frontier region, um, you know, he saw he, he saw some chances. Um, he was the kind of guy who who seemed to um, you know always try to pick whichever side would win and, and, and get on it, um, benefit from the misery of others, um, he, and 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 so that's the kind of figure he was. The, in, the, in this period, um, you know, there was a there was a, a border established, obviously, between Canada and the. Uh, which is a British possession, and the new United States. And by moving back and forth across this border, which would only be solidified after the War of 1812, um, you know, he could escape creditors and gain um, uh, new uh, opportunities um, and represent in some ways a variation on a theme that was very big in, in the early 19th century, um, the, which, which in some ways is kind of the era of a con man. Uh, with everything, um, you know, growing and, and, and changing so quickly, um, it was possible for people to misrepresent themselves in ways that they hadn't before and to use um, those acquired and uh, purloined and, and affected identities in ways that would enrich them. Um, so here's a guy that, that did that. Um, and there, there, are other, there are others as well. Uh, and, and in some cases, it, it's, it's really hard to distinguish um, what, uh, between their uh, behavior, some case in some cases, uh, seemingly uh, operating in ways that were benign and even helpful to others, and others, in other times, uh, you know, their help is suspect if 
they enrich themselves in the process. And he's just he's just one of these unsavory characters that I use in the book um, to really illustrate a larger theme, which is the um, the opportunism and the, the chaos of this social and economic world before it's more fully stabilized by the assertion of power and authority by the state of New York, um, by the U.S. federal government, and by um, by the Senecas um, as a as their own um, sovereign and and somewhat more um, stable uh, political entity. And so, out of this this complicated milieu, you obviously have Handsome Lake, uh, the Seneca prophet uh, in Western New York. Um, for listeners who might not be familiar, introduce us to Handsome Lake and why uh, he's so central to the story you're telling here about the Senecas. Um, Handsome Lake was a um, was a, a league chief, which meant that he occupied one of the um, the important offices, um, you know, position of a, of a kind of chief in um, the larger Iroquois Confederacy, um, and this was a, a hereditary position. Um, and one one of you know of great prestige and, and power, um, you know, not in a in a kind of Western um, political way, but um, uh, but it had, but it had you know he had great um, importance um, ceremonially, diplomatically, and you know be, to to the extent that um, that he like other league chiefs were able to um, really mobilize their, their their talents and and be effective. Um, so he was a, a prominent member of the um, Senecas, and he was related also to um, one of the one of the great leaders of this uh, time, um, Cornplanter, um, who was the head of the leader of the Allegheny Senecas, one of the one of the, the main uh, Seneca communities. Um, he had had a, a rough life; uh, not a lot was known about him before. Um, the, the late 1790s and early 19th century, um, he, he had um, had problems with um, with alcohol abuse. Um, you know, his he he um, you know he he was seemed clearly in decline. Um, but one day um, in 1799, he um, he kind of collapsed and and um, and and seemed to be uh, dying, fading. Um, but instead of dying, he woke up and revealed that he had had a kind of vision that he'd actually traveled to another world. Um, and this vision and a, and a series of these vision, these visions through a through um, uh, through dreams, um, were ultimately ultimately transformed him into a sort of prophet, um, and, a, and a prophet who would help restructure. Uh, Seneca and Iroquois religious ideas and offer kind of social and economic prescriptions about how it is that Senecas could remake their lives in ways that would be true to their traditions, to their history, to their experience, um, and yet adapted to the new realities of a, um, a commercializing, industrializing, uh, emergent nation state moving west uh over them and around them and through them so he's um so so what we have is an emergence in seventeen ninety nine of really of a of a prophet and a uh, a religious revival um that's the heart of uh, a, a reinvention of uh, of Seneca's 
which is critical in allowing them to accommodate their new realities and to survive. Uh, what's you know particularly interesting about this is that we can date all this pretty precisely because there were Quaker uh, missionaries uh, on hand uh, who were actually um, who, who wrote about this um, this distinctive event not only because they found it interesting and they were on hand, but because uh, Corn Planter and others actually requested that they write this stuff down, um, that they record it. Uh, there's a sense of, um, of of the power of of, of new forms of, of text and communication, and um, and so we have um, we, we have some eyewitness uh, accounts by Quaker missionaries on hand uh, in in the village um, and recording subsequent visions as explained to them and narrated to them by Hanson Lake and um, and others around him. Hmm. And one of the things that you make a very persuasive argument about here is how the Handsome Lake religion uh, spells gender trouble in a sense. Um, it plays out particularly in accusations and punishment for witchcraft. Uh, but more generally, how do the roles of men and women change in society, in Seneca society in this period, uh, particularly as a result of the religious revivalism brought on by Handsome Lake? Um, well, what we see is our... our um are kind of two, you know, sets of influences that are very powerful. Uh, of course, um, coming from the outside was a very strong, um, uh, you know, kind of reformist demand, especially of Protestant missionaries um, and, and reformers, um, to really transform uh, Native people into version of white Americans. Um, and, and this is a world then that was to be imposed on them from the outside that was much more patriarchal, um, that was much less, uh, you know, knowledgeable or interested or committed to, uh, the role of, of women in, 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 um, any kind of decision making, land ownership, status, and so forth. Um, it was more, um, it, instead of communal, it tended to be more, uh, nuclear. Um, it stressed private property. It stressed uh, men's agricultural work uh, in, in bounded farmsteads, fenced in, you know, set off from the wilderness. It, it stressed um, women's domesticity, women's places in the, was in the home. Uh, women were to be submissive, subservient to men. Uh, marriage was to be rebuilt, um, to be um, uh, monogamous and um, uh, patriarchal. Um, you know, so it was a, really a, a fundamental transformation of um, Indian life. Um, and this was a model imposed on Senecas and, 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 and nearly every other, you know, virtually every other uh, Native American group by um, 19th century white reformers. And, and it had begun even early. Um, so this was the message um, that was being imposed on them by all sorts of uh, Christian missionaries. The Senecas, um, the missionaries that showed up at the Senecas and, 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 and had a kind of proprietary right, it seems, to, um, to to mediate between this white world and an Indian world were Quakers. And Quakers had a, a, a kind of a different project. Um, they were much less intent on proselytizing, on pushing a particular religious belief and practice on Native people. Um, and so this had profound implications for, um, uh, for the Senecas. Um, meanwhile, um, internally, uh, it was very clear, I think, to, um, to all 
uh, leaders, men and women, um, in you know in Seneca communities, that something that things would have to change, that they couldn't live life um, as they had, you know, generations ago. Uh, the world had changed in just fundamental ways, and so it wasn't a question of going back to tradition or or, or um, um, resisting change. It was it was it, it was kind of embracing change in a purposeful way. How is it? But something had to be done, but what? Um, and so there was a lot of um, internal conflict about how to adjust, how to survive in the midst of these really pressing post-colonial circumstances. And one of the answers was provided by Hanson Lake. And that answer um, was uh, attuned to the new world, to this, to this, you know, new world that was enveloping them, um, and was. Um, in some ways, you know, quite different from uh, Iroquois tradition or, or, or previous experience. One of the things that he seemed to press at the very beginning um, was um, a, a new kind of patriarchal domestic order. Uh, and you can see this in his prophecies, which I, you know, and I talk about this in the book, um, that, that seemed to reconstruct Seneca families in ways that seem much closer to a kind of white uh, model, uh, which was, you know, unsettling, unsettling to um, uh, to Seneca society, to various communities, um, and it seemed to threaten more more than anyone um, the rights and the status and of uh, and freedom of of women within the society. Um, women were more powerful, and if, if Handsome Lake was was interested in in, in remaking Seneca society, um, then he would inevitably go up against the most uh, you know powerful and conservative members of that society, um, and they were you know likely to as, as likely to be women as men, and and so what we see is is um, is a is a history um, a, a, a short period of of real chaos in society, not simply because of uh, Handsome Lake's reforms, but, but uh, you know, Seneca's were trying to deal with all of these chaotic uh, conditions. Now, and, and one of the ways that, um, that this kind of chaos was understood was not simply um, as a kind of external threat, but an internal threat as well. And that might occur through a kind of covert attack on Seneca people that would come through witchcraft. It might come in the form of sickness or or um, or ill health of, of various sorts, um, and so when things went bad, um, it, one of the, one of the things to consider was that uh, you know that that ill health or misfortune was the result of witchery, and so um, what we see is uh, following some of Handsome Lake's revelations was a series of witch hunt, uh, a period of witch hunting in which um, certain members of Seneca society were demonized. And and it, it, it seems like he uh, focused particularly on women. Um, witchcraft has been, um, as far as we can tell, and again, the, the records are not like they, not like those that exist for sale in Massachusetts or for uh, medieval or early modern Europe. Um, they're, you know, they're very difficult and, and fragmentary, but um, it looks like uh, a, a crime that had previously been um, not particularly gendered 
Uh, that is, there are male and female witches, uh, both, in, both perpetrators and, and, and sufferers of, of witchcraft. And now um, it seems like they um, became a woman's crime and a way, uh, it, a way perhaps that, um, that Handsome Lake um, pinpointed the dangers uh, that Seneca faced, the threats that they faced, you know, the source of those threats, and um, a way, you know, one might say cynically, of, of purging his society of those who were most likely to resist his, his changes. I mean, I, I don't know if I want to go uh, quite that far and, and, and talk about that. Um, I, I don't think we really have the evidence to say that. Um, but, um, but, the, but the impact of some of the witchcraft accusations um, was to um, kind of uh, send, you know, a political political shocks uh, that had to be addressed, had to be worked out. And ultimately, um, we see um, the belief in witchcraft continue, but accusations themselves die down as the society itself stabilized and found a way um, to follow Handsome Lake, uh, but do so in a way that was much less misogynist and much more um, amenable to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the power and status of women um, than his initial revelations would seem to suggest. Hmm. It seems to me at the very least, um, the story you're telling here about Handsome Lake challenges the traditional rubric under which perhaps religious revivalism in indigenous communities in this period might be put as either being um, conservative, essentially you know, tied to tradition and the way things were, or on the other hand, progressive and fully embracing. It seems like this is something that's falling in a very complicated middle between those poles. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a certain hybridity, hybridity to it. And, um, you know, I, I think that probably conservative and progressive are just too, too simplistic, sure. um, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, what, what, what is, is, um, clear, I think is the adaptability the creativity and resourcefulness of the Senecas um, throughout this period, um, and you know, the, in the ways that they they found a way to um, embrace what they saw as the best aspects of this of this new world socially and politically and economically, um, and resist uh, those things that seem to be um, you know most threatening to them, or that they you know figured out pretty quickly just wouldn't work. And part of the reason that they were able to do that is they had the space to reinvent themselves, in part because of the ways that the Quaker mission to them worked. You know, in, in some ways, they seem like a um, early 19th century version of the Peace Corps. Mm. You know, certainly with with moral and, and kind of political vision um, and, 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 and social prescription, but um, but more more geared towards kind of social and political aid than. Um, than you know religious re-education, and so because of their their reticence to impose their views um, and their ability then to um, kind of isolate the um, your, the uh, the Senecas against other more intrusive, uh, overwhelming um, Protestant missionaries, uh, it meant that they had a kind of uh, space. They were the, the kinds of the ways that they were trying to work out who they were. Um, were tolerated by the more patient um, Quakers, while you know, kind of fending off um, other more intrusive missionaries. So, um, you know, they could they could work some of these things out. They they, uh, for example, uh, while the while the Quakers wanted to recreate them as these kind of um, uh, self sufficient farm farm families, 
uh, the Senecas, uh, I think, realized pretty quickly that, um, you know, agriculture farming was 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 uh, was something that was, you know, uh, uh, you know, perfectly good um, economic enterprise, and and um, um, and they had already had that covered since women were uh, great horticulturalists. Um, why should you know, when they said, you know, we have, we have to transform Senecas into farmers, you know, they could kind of at least think to themselves, well, we already are. Mm-hmm. Um, our women are doing the farming fine. They're feeding us well. Um, so why should why should we transform ourselves? Uh, what benefit would it um, would we derive from uh, from changing the way we organize our land, own our property, and grow our food? Um, on the other hand, they were quite willing and had been for a while in engaging in market relations. Um, making connections, selling stuff, selling um, selling logs and shingles and 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 clabbers, uh, uh food, uh, furs, uh, finished goods like moccasins and so forth to um, uh, to white buyers. Sometimes in fairly distant markets, you know, down in you know from uh, from where they were in in, in western New York down to uh, to Pittsburgh, uh, and and so this kind of market relations, a kind of embrace of of at least a form of um, capitalism, and subsistence plus a kind of market orientation to uh, to, to using uh, kind of interdependent economic relations in order to maintain their independence. This uh, was problematic to uh, to Quakers, um, who who preferred a more anachronistic kind of approach. Um, particularly, they were they were upset because they saw the potential dangers of these kind of interactions, especially if Seneca men went down to Pittsburgh and um, you know, brought um, um, you know liquor back, uh, which caused havoc in, um, in in villages and so forth. But um, um, but you know, in, in some cases, the the uh, you know we see it work in really odd ways, where um, Seneca men would 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 sell uh, logs and boards and shingles and uh, clapboards and such, and bring back uh, barrels of beer, which then they 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 might dispense to. Um, uh, to, to 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 whites, so it's not so much you know selling liquor to Indians, but Indians selling liquor to or beer to whites. It, 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 it's it's a complicated story, and and I wouldn't I certainly would not want to minimize the uh, the damage that alcohol uh, did, but um, you know it it, it we, when when we look uh, carefully and closely at this, we see a, a very complicated world in which. Uh, Seneca people were willing to change in purposeful ways if it meant that they could uh, survive, maintain their ethnicity, maintain their identity, and especially maintain their uh, their land base. Well, as we get uh, close to the end of our discussion here today, I want to just remind uh, our listeners that we've we've really only touched on the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's explored uh, in this very compelling book. I want to step back here, though, and uh, return to something you write on very early in the, in the book. You write that the Seneca story is not mere prologue. And it seems when you write that, that you're responding or, or intervening on a certain historical or cultural myth of Indians stepping aside or even disappearing, perhaps, in the wake of America's independence. Uh, talk about that myth and, and how this story you're, you're telling, the Seneca story, uh, challenges, again, this idea that... Um, the story of indigenous people is is merely a prologue for the historical play uh, that follows them. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's 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 a pretty standard uh, trope: the vanishing Indian. Um, you know, where um, they inhabit the, the early chapters of of our you know, history books, and 
um, and then are cleared away for, um, you know, the, the glorious extent of, of white America. And, you know, obviously, I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, terrible caricature. And it's one that I think is challenged, has had the challenge for a long time. And yet sure. it kind of sticks. Um, and so just one of the things that we think about, we think about uh, the, the process of the frontier uh, in American history, you know, going back to Frederick Jackson Turner and before him. Um, and, um, and so that, that frontier moves west. And it seems like it, you know, it wipes the slate, uh, you know, the kind of the, the continental slate clean. Um, you know, it, it just it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't make any sense to really think about um, the American experience that way. So, you know, the story, much of the story that I'm that I'm telling is behind the frontier. Um, you know, as Americans are pushing west, and we we think we have permission somehow to uh, forget about Native people uh, once we start looking uh, at the plains. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just not true. And so this is a, this is an interesting story about ways that, um, uh, Native people are not simply, don't just kind of disintegrate. Uh, that was the assumption, that was the hope that the vanishing, that Indians would either be pushed west or be assimilated. And, um, instead, what we see is a much more interesting and complicated story. It's a story actually fairly consistent with, um, you know, other ways of viewing American history as, um, as diverse, multicultural, uh, complicated. Uh, we have lots of different, um, you know, jurisdictions. We have different um, ethnic uh, communities with, 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 you know, different, um, you know, ways of understanding life and, and living in it um, in common. Um, so, you know, there, it's, um, you know, Senecas and other Native people, um, you know, have a, a rich and complicated uh, history, uh, and it's not one of decline. It's one of transformation. It's one sometimes, you know, of great misery and tragedy. Uh, but you know, Native people continue to exist. The Senecas continue to exist. They'll, 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 and they'll, they will into the, uh, you know, future. Um, it's not just uh, a story of declension and uh, and vanishment. So it's it's. Um, if we can think about, if we can compare um, the story of Native people to the story of non-Native people, um, sometimes we find more similarity than we might think. Hmm. I mean, what did um, what did these you know white uh, settlers want? They wanted uh, land. They wanted opportunity, often through through, uh, through land, and they went west to find it. Um, they were often they went west because they didn't have opportunity in the east. They didn't many whites didn't own land. Uh, they didn't have access to land. Um, they they uh, they they didn't become uh, rich. They weren't the captains of industry. Um, they had to find ways to accommodate radically change social and economic conditions. Industrialization, for example, uh, and um, you know new kinds of political relations, new gender relations. So you know it's it's um, everyone in the United States was going through these really um, you know, incredible and overwhelming transformations, not just in the 19th century, but even through the 20th century. So um, the, the Seneca story, another uh, story of other Native people, is um, has has its distinctive elements, very important ones, worth emphasizing. But there are also elements that are you know uh, similar, as you know, everyone had to, you know, make sense and accommodate and, and find ways to live in a constantly transforming world. And in some ways, um, people like the Senecas had some advantages. Um, they, you know, if, if land was the key to opportunity, they had land. And so for them, it wasn't about acquiring it. It was about protecting it. 
Um, you know, there was all sorts of missions, missionaries running around trying to transform uh, white people and African-American people and Native American people. Um, Senecas were able to uh, remake themselves on a, on a, in a way that they controlled. Um, and they, you know, if, if we look at the ways that throughout American history, Americans have uh, founded new kinds of utopian communities to try to, to uh, model and, and experiment on new ways to live in changing conditions, you know, um, we, we, can see, we can see the Senecas in that way as well. So, um, no, I, I think if we, you know, American history is much more complicated and interesting than um, the kind of caricature that we often get in public sphere. And so, you know, scholars have done a lot, I think, uh, to, to try to complicate this uh, story uh, to inform the public better. And, you know, if my book can contribute to that, then, you know, great. Well, I've been speaking with Matthew Dennis, author of Seneca Possessed, Indians, Witchcraft, and Power in Early America from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Before I let you go, Professor Dennis, uh, I usually feel bad asking this question of authors whose books just came out right before I uh, interviewed them. But because this came out in 2010, I feel less bad asking you about what you're working on next and, and what project you hope to engage with now. Well, I, my, I, have, a, I have a new project that I call American Relics and the politics of public memory. And so I'm very interested in the ways that um, material objects give a kind of, of, of authority, sometimes even a kind of sanctification to public speech. Um, and, you know, in some cases, some some, in some cases, those are human uh, remains. Um, sometimes there are other kinds of artifacts. Um, but I'm, in the, I'm interested in the materiality of, um, uh, of, of public discussions of you know great meaning in the public arena, and so it'll be a it'll it'll be a study that'll go from um, the mound builders to basically the present to September 11th, 2001, and and uh, and that one of the early chapters will be just to give you just kind of an, an example will be um, looking at um, the ways that uh, white Americans made molehills out of mounds when they're trying to figure out what to do. How to understand the, um, the presence of these mounds in um, in the interior of the North American continent? What was their relationship to uh, to, to living native people, and how uh, might they transform that meaning in a way that gives give, give, gave them a kind of claim to that landscape, um, dispossessing uh, native people in the process? Uh, so it's so it's you know the the mounds. The, the physical artifacts, um, you know, there are, are, are very important in trying to, um, you know, make a case about the meaning of America and uh, and people's claims to it. But, you know, that's just one of a number of episodes that I'll be uh, examining throughout the book. Well, it sounds fascinating. I, I can't wait to I can't wait to see it when it comes out. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on New Books in Native American Studies. My pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Matthew Dennis on his new book, Seneca Possessed, Indians, Witchcraft, and Power in the Early American Republic from the University of Pennsylvania Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like our Facebook page, you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. 
For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.